This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today, the book is titled Cherokee's Life, A Canine's Final Reflections. And the author is Sandra Y. Roberts. Sandra, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Jay. You, I'm sorry, you're actually talking about the seasons of Cherokee's life, and Cherokee is, uh, what is Cherokee, and who is Cherokee? Well, Cherokee actually was my um, Shih Tzu, and unfortunately, um, in November of 2007, um, due to kidney failure, we had to make the heartbreaking decision of putting him down. So, uh, needless to say, that was pretty heart-wrenching and and, uh, left me pretty grief-stricken because it was so sudden and unexpected. How did Cherokee get ill, and what was the backstory there that caused you to want to write this story? This is more than a dog's tail, isn't it? Um, Well, basically, Cherokee was just this little zen-like little dog, and, you know, he was just really content to kind of observe life, and I often wondered, what is it that he's thinking? And actually, on the way to driving him to the animal hospital, I was sitting in the passenger seat and had him wrapped in the blanket, had him cradled in my arms like a baby. And so he was just very lethargic and weak-looking to me. And at one point when I looked down at him, he looked over at me and maintained eye contact with me for several moments that sent a chill down my spine Hmm. um, because of the intelligence that I saw in that gaze, which was not normally what I had seen before. And I almost felt like he was trying to convey a message to me, and I also instinctively knew that he was saying goodbye. And then after that, he turned away and closed his eyes. I, too, have experienced similar communication from pets that have been a part of our family's life. Intense feeling to have that communication that's unspoken. Yes, definitely, definitely. And it it just really shows that bond and that connection between what humans have with with their animals and really what a role that they play. And they really are little fur angels, I think, that are there to guide us. And so it was uh, shortly after that that I kind of had this inspiration about if Cherokee had the ability to talk and articulate with words, what would his worldview have looked like? And so I started to write shortly afterwards, just kind of fooling around with what he must have been thinking that last night that he was in the animal hospital. And I came up with about nine pages. But then after that, it was like that crippling fear that I feel fear and that self-doubt come up again about my abilities as a writer. And so it just kind of sat on my desktop collecting dust for about 18 months. So I would say that the gestation period of this story took about that long because after that it was like dust was being kicked up in my own life. Major transitions and upheavals in my own life too, which then became uh, the inspiration for Alicia Baxter's character. Mm. You managed to pen 124 pages, and the first of the chapters that grabbed my attention was the introduction of Cherokee into the family. Fortunately for me, my new family loved me at first sight. I'm assuming that's the story of Cherokee, correct? Yes, yes. And it is basically a fictionalized account of that, too, because this uh, Cherokee actually happened to be my partner's dog first, and then afterwards, then I got to know Cherokee for eight years, and he became very much a special 
integral part of my life. So that is basically a fictional account um, introducing Alicia, uh, how he came into Alicia's life right. and ended up playing a very strong role in her life and her journey. Who do you think is going to enjoy reading this book and why? Um, I think that basically that this book is going to appeal to probably readers over 30 and also to for people who read it anybody who has struggled in their life I think who has dreams and goals and just find themselves constantly crippled by that little voice in their head that tells them that they're not good enough or that they don't have the abilities or capabilities or to have faith in themselves to to tap into their own strengths and uh, basically our inherent gifts and talents that we have. Um, and that was basically my goal through Alicia Baxter's character, to really get out of your own way. Yes. Explain to me the Editor's Choice Award. It shows on your cover that you have been awarded that. Yes, that came as a big surprise to me. And basically through the editing process, basically what was written to me was that they really liked the fact that this book was written from Cherokee's point of view. How he just came across as just very wise would convey to readers his view of the human condition in just a very humorous and loving and wise way that was not based on judgment and also his loyalty and love to Alicia Baxter and also to the the supporting characters in the book too and how they all just seem to gel together. You've mentioned that they're part of the underlying theme that you're trying to address is that we place limitations on our own life. What other themes or what other messages would you like people to take from reading your book? Well, basically, um, also, too, that, that life really is an adventure, and we can make it as hard or as easy as possible. And just that the love and the faith of the people around you, and not to take ourselves so seriously, that life isn't really meant to be a struggle, and I think that we ourselves are the ones who do that. I don't think that we were meant to be here to struggle, but to to really discover who we are. And what do you feel about adversity? What is the role of adversity in our lives that's keyed in this book? I think the role of adversity is that sometimes it's really a wake-up call for all of us. I think that sometimes, as for myself recently, that the adversity really has you go inward and really starts to make you question, take a good look at your life. You know, I think that it's then that it, it tends to break apart who we thought that we were. And it's kind of like taking a chisel to ourselves and all of the calcified preconceived notions that we've had about ourselves, our lives, kind of crumbling us down. And it's the deconstruction of ourselves to reconstruct who we really are and we're meant to be. Even though you've mentioned in the book there is uh, lightheartedness and there's also pain and loss in the book, you keep a fairly positive tone. Why is that? Because I I didn't want it to get mired in negativity. I wanted to keep a positive tone in there so that it, it wouldn't bog down readers with a lot of sadness just that even though we have adversity in our lives, there's kind of like this light that continues to shine on us that, that will help to guide us, you know, out of that out of that darkness. So we may have to walk through the dark, but as long as we know that we hold that flashlight, we're going to make it through. Wanted to keep it lighthearted, to keep readers engaged, fabulous. that there is hope for everyone. Absolutely fabulous and a great approach. Is there one scene or one event in this book that might stand out and make a great scene for a movie? Well, I think the the one part, the one scene is when Alicia, after she's going through denial and didn't want to face the great loss in her life, and this is when she is in Florida with her parents for a while, where all of a sudden, out of love, her, her uh, brother and mother kind of are forcing her to confront her grief and where she runs out to the beach and basically, you know, yells out, kind of like speaking to the, the universe. 
uh, falls down to her knees, and that is when she her soul just totally breaks apart. And where Cherokee is by her side, offering her comfort, but he also knows that he can't do this for her. Even though he's hurting, she has to go through this. And it is then where you see where she falls apart and slowly starts to build herself back up again. As you describe it, I can see that scene in my mind. Mm-hmm. How would you introduce this book to someone in a couple of sentences? Oh, gosh. I would just say that, that this is a book of hope and inspiration, that you will love this book. It's kind of like a, a little gold nugget, because you have Cherokee's viewpoint and also to his bond with his mistress. And it's also a, a form of, or, um, you know, courage. It's a story of courage and perseverance and that um, nothing in life can hold us down because I, I think that we have very strong spirits. And just, just to keep on going and never, ever give up. Everything that happens in our life is kind of like a beautiful little dance, and we have to continue to dance through life. Sandra, from your perspective, tell me in your own words what you think makes this book stand apart from the rest in the marketplace and makes it unique. Uh, I think what makes it different is is just that there isn't any controversy in the book at all. It it just real it's everyday people. So it doesn't take place in um on a battlefield. It doesn't take place let's say in in centuries ago. These are everyday people that I think everybody can relate to. Alicia could be themselves it, and uh, also to the family members. These are all people that you know and love. And I think that that is what will capture the reader's interest, is that there's a, a, a beginning, a middle, and an end that just all gels together. That just talks about life, because we all have a life. And what is the setting for this book? Where did it take place? Well, initially, it takes place in Massachusetts, and so they you can kind of see where Alicia before, how she was um, in Massachusetts, and then as she transforms, it then goes, she moves cross-country to Washington State, to San Juan Island. So I think it's also the two extremes of having two coasts that also reflects the two extremes in her where she goes from point A to infinity. Was there anything challenging about writing this book? I think that what was the most challenging part was overcoming my own lack of confidence in telling this story and the, you know, initial writer's block that I was suffering from and how to proceed. But once I got past that, it just all started. This story basically wrote itself. I think that working through my own grief in, in the, um, the recent changes in my life, it, it really helped me, I think, to solidify who uh, these characters were. And that's when Cherokee's voice really became strong, and Alicia Baxter's character really became went from being this nebulous, formless being to really a character as I infuse her with my own experiences. Sandra, until now you've not been a published author. You've written other articles and so on throughout your life and had this desire. But this is a first, isn't it? It was an aspiration that I'd um, always wanted all of my life. And so finally it came to a point where also, too, in my in my own deconstruction of myself, where it was, it was now or never. And uh, this is the first of many books that I hope to write. Best wishes. I'm confident that will be the case. The title of this book is The Seasons of Cherokee's Life, A Canine's Final Reflections. The author is Sandra Y. Roberts. Sandra, where do we get copies of your book? The book is available on the iUniverse website and also, too, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. It was a pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Here come old flat top, here 
Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Searching for the Castle, The Back Trail of an Adoption. And our author is Barbara Lee Orstrom. Thank you for joining me today, Barbara. It's good to be with you here today. This is an interesting and challenging book, even by the cover itself. The back of the cover reads like this, like cowboys turning in the saddle to look at where they came from. Searching for the Castle documents the back trail of author Barbara Lee Orstrom and her adoption. Begins with her urgency as an 18-year-old woman initiating her search for her birth parents. Tell me the stories behind this. Why, at 18, did you get motivated to search into your history? Well, the truth is that I didn't actually have to make a decision at 18 because it was something I always wanted to do, like even from when I was a small child. And the reason why age 18 was such a you know, big marker is because 18 is when you legally become an adult, so that meant I had the you know, the legal status of an adult so I could go forward and represent myself in court and do whatever else I needed to do as an adult. Tell me about the beginning of this story. You even, I'm assuming, or reading from your book, get the impression that you were not just a baby set out for adoption, but you were a little bit older child. Uh, Yes, I was put up for adoption when I was about four and a half. And what happened is, is there's... I mean, there's some real tragedy in this in this whole story. But what happened is, is my my mother, my birth mother, was very ill, and my father could not take care of us. So when I was about two, my mother ended up going into an institution, and my father put, you know, me and my brother and sister in the foster care system because he couldn't take care of us. So we were in foster care for a couple of years, and. And one of the foster homes we were in was a very, very loving and wonderful home with somebody I still have a relationship with. They thought that they were going to be able to keep us forever. And then when I was about four and a half, the state made a decision to have the three of us put up for adoption, and we were adopted when I was about... The legal thing happened when I was around five. And you adopted into the same family? Yes, my brother, sister, and I, yes, were adopted by the same people, yes. Even that's uh, somewhat ad- unusual, but certainly I would think a, a positive step. Was it a positive experience for you? It, it was positive being with my brother and sister, for sure. I mean, I don't think that I would have be here and in the shape that I'm in if I wasn't with my brother and sister. And in speaking with the judge, once you got this process started, you even commented that you knew the brand of cigarette your mother had uh, smoked. Yeah, that was actually quite interesting because at that time, it was still, you know, getting your adoption records was, you know, usually people were turned down in court. I mean, people would go to court and then have their petition denied. And when I told the judge that, what I was really trying to emphasize to her was that there was nothing in the records that I didn't already know, uh, that I hadn't already discovered through the process of searching. Um, So... 
I met my mother's first husband, which is how I knew she smoked parliaments because I asked him all kinds of questions, um, and other people who knew her. And so I knew her not just from documents and papers, but also from people who had actually known who she was. So she was a much more, you know, dimensional person to me than, you know, just the person in the records and just the person that the, um, that the adoption papers showed her to be. And that was the point I was trying to make to the judge, like, look, there's no point in keeping this a secret anymore because I already know everything. You knew your name, you knew your birth name and everything else. Yes, I knew everything. I knew everything. Well, that was kind of an interesting story because the, the, that was a result of us being in the foster care system because when my father had, you know, delivered us over to DSS, we had, um, you know, books and clothes and, you know, the things that little children have. And one of those books had the name Orstrom written in it. Uh, and I did not, you know, and this is in the book, I didn't know that Orstrom was actually my, 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 you know, original last name. I just remembered this, this name, Orstrom, and I misspelled it. But I guessed that that was um, the, the, you know, the name of my birth parents because I couldn't figure out where else it would belong to. So... Um, and then based on this, on that guess, which is basically where the book begins, is me, you know, remembering that book and remembering the name inside the cover, um, I was able to get my birth records from the hospital. Your story is unique in that you are an older child and remember some of your history. For children who are adopted at birth, how does the birth certificate, how is that handled? Um, I'll speak for... You know, my experience, because each state has different laws, but basically what happens is that um, the, the, the state basically expunges the names of the um, birth parents and puts in the name of the adoptive parents in its place. So, so it's as if the birth parents never existed at all. Uh, and it's, you know, it's pretty tricky because you can go, I mean, I can still go to Suffolk County Courthouse in Boston now and ask for the birth certificate of Barbara Orstrom and I can't get it. It doesn't exist. The the birth certificate has the the names of my adoptive parents in it. So um, I found all the discussion about identity stuff now to be pretty ironic because that you know in this particular case it's it's a kind of identity theft where the where the real names are just completely erased. So yes, and this book is unique in that you were able to trace your history and develop a relationship with your family history. How long did it take to put this together? Um, the search itself, the, the original, you know, really fast movement of the search took two years. Um, and then there were some leftover pieces that, I'd say a span of 10 years went by, but I wasn't actively searching. Um, and that was to get my mother's hospital records um, and to get some of the other sort of incomplete pieces filled in. But the, 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 the major part of the search was was done by the time that I was um, around 21, 20, 21 years old. Um, the book itself took forever. <laughs> and I, I'm 53 now, and I, I think actually it's really, I don't think I could have published this book earlier. I think when I was younger, the events were too close and too painful, and it's just not good to, you know, um, you know, publish when, when things are that raw. Uh, so, you know, for people reading it, it's all new information, but for me it actually is just something that I've integrated as part of my life. Um, so the writing part, I mean, the writing part on and off took, you know, that's hard because I wrote the first version of the book when I was in my 20s, and uh, the version that you have now is very different from the from the first version that, that I wrote. I ended up cutting a lot out of it, but... Um, and then it I would throw it on a shelf and leave it there for 10 years. And then, and then I would say, okay, let me try this again. Um, I came close to selling it two or three times, um, and, but just never you know, made it across that line. And, and again, now when I look back, I think it was probably a blessing in disguise because I don't think I was ready to have that book out there at that time. So, um, so I'd say there were probably three or four times where I just said, okay, I'm going to put everything I have into working on this and then would put it away. And then I finally got to a point where I said, okay, look, either all this stuff's going in the recycle bin right now, or I'm going to publish this book this year. And I decided to publish it and move forward. Um, but it was a, a very long, convoluted process, 
And probably for every piece that's in that book, I probably wrote another 10 that ended up in the trash. Amazing. And do you feel that adoptees should uh, consider searching out their history? What is the rule of thumb for that? Um, I, I mean, I think it's a very individual and personal decision. I think there's a lot of adoptees who don't want to search, and that's, you know, um, I you know, completely respect that. Um, I do think that for adoptees who do want to search, that the, it would be a lot better if the legal barriers were removed. Um, and I think for me that the searching was imperative. It was something that I absolutely had to do. And um, I feel like even though a lot of what I found was really tragic, um, I, I feel like it did help me just become a much more grounded person and have a, a relationship and a history to my to my roots and my ancestry. And even though, I mean, even though there were things about my parents that weren't good, there were also things about them that were really wonderful. And it was, I don't know, it was just really great for me to say, I'm connected to these people, and they're my people. And they, they have a history, you know, beyond their lives, they're their ancestors. You know, like my mother came from Irish immigrants, so there's a whole Irish immigration story that happened, and there was a lot of ways that these people were brave and tough people, and it's really nice for me to feel that connection with them. In addition to writing this book, you also have been in the teaching profession. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. That was the other thing. I, I'm very lucky because I always knew what I wanted to do as far as that went, too, and I knew I wanted to be a teacher when I was five years old. I just, I, I loved teaching. I was in love with teaching, and I think when I was a probably 17 or 18, uh, another teacher said to me, Barbara, if you can find a way to put together your love of writing and your love of young people, if you can find a way to put those two things together, you're going to have a really satisfying life. And so teaching writing was the perfect, you know, thing for me to do. And I, I love teaching writing now as much as I did when I first started. It's really, really been a godsend to me to be able to have that profession. In searching for the castle, is there one particular underlying theme that you want people to to get from reading this? I think probably the biggest one is that children, you know, and some of this is a little cliche and typical because everybody says this, but but that you know when you're talking about adoption, the people who are without, who have the fewest rights and the least power, are really are the are the kids. They're you know they're tiny, they're infants, or they're three or four or whatever. When the child is removed from their parents, then the state in some form steps in and acts as a parent. And I think that we need to to make sure that the that the, these children are really really protected. You know, in every state in the union, we all read horrifying stories about what happens to to kids that fell through the cracks, and that I just believe that we need to be more sensitive to these nuances. And I, I think the other thing I want to say is that adoption is a very complicated topic. There's a lot of complicated nuances to it, and the, the thing that makes a family a family, whether it's an adopted family, a foster family, a birth family, or a family from Mars, the thing that really, really makes a family is the love and protection that happens between the members of that family. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, my story is kind of a sort of stereotype that foster parents are the, are the you know, that there's a negative stereotype associated with them. But in my case, you know, my foster family was just absolutely fantastic. And they, they are the people that were really one of my family because they were the people who really, really loved me. So, and the people I still have a relationship with. In researching your book, was there any one story that stands out as being shocking and will be shocking to the reader? I think I found out that my mother had taken her own life. And that just, compl- I never saw it coming. I mean, and I was really young. I was 19 years old. I just, it just never occurred to me. Well, first of all, it never occurred to me that she wouldn't be alive. And then it never occurred to me that she wouldn't be alive because she had taken her own life. Mm. And that, you know, was a really, really hard point in my life and a really, I think, a hard point for the reader um, to see that happen. Uh, um, And then, you know, trying to pick myself up and move forward from there. Um, I mean, I think if my, my mother were alive today, I think she would feel proud of, of who I've become and who my other siblings have become. Um, but I think that, 
yeah, there's not much else to say about it. Just that it sure. was a really, really hard and shocking moment. That would be very sad to to, to discover that. Absolutely, very, very difficult. Was there anything else that was challenging about putting your book together? Um, I think um, some of it was just my personality because. Um, in general, I'm a very private person, which might sound really funny considering that I just wrote this book. <laughs> but um, it was really hard for me to balance out, you know, is this story even worth telling? Should it be told? I, you know, I want to protect my family. And balancing out those those kinds of issues with, you know, a competing issue, which is that I really, really wanted the stories to be told, not not even just for for me or for my family, but just, you know, in writing we talk about, you know, the more specific you are, the more universal you are. You know, this this story is much bigger than just me and the names of the people in the book. The story is the story of, of any of us who are searching for something and find something we weren't looking for or searching for something and find that even though we didn't find what we were looking for, what we did find was actually what we needed. So it's a... Uh, it's a much, much bigger story than just the, just the individual characters involved. And that was finally what won me over. Like, I really, I don't know, when I first started writing the book, I was like, yes, I really want to change the world, <laughs> which, which at some point we all want to do, because I really wanted to change the way states handle kids that are in these situations. And that's still true, too. Like, I, I want, you know, people to look at this and say, look, we really can do better to help kids who, for whatever reason, through no fault of their own, are separated from their parents. So that drive versus my, you know, insecurity and desire for privacy was a real challenge. It was something that was a, which is something I really had to work through. Thank you for overcoming that concern and sharing your history, your your story. Barbara, is there any other thing that you'd like to pass along to the reader? I think what I'd like to acknowledge the reader for just reading this book. There's there's parts of the book that are painful, and um, and I want to just acknowledge the reader that that you know reading painful parts of books is sometimes really, you know, really difficult and really hard. And I thank the reader for the courage to go through and read that stuff and, and uh, persevere with going through the book to see where it you know comes at the end. Because the end um, result is very positive. Yes, yes, it is. The title of the book is Searching for the Castle, Back Trail of an Adoption. Now, Barbara, where do we get copies of this book? You can get it at iUniverse.com. And that's one word, you know, so it's iUniverse.com. And to type in Searching for the Castle. I will be having a, a website that, you know, the website's in planning stages right now, and it will be it will be posted soon. And you would be able to find that by searching for my for my name, so Barbara, and then Orstrom, O-H-R-S-T-R-O-M. Thank you, Barbara, for visiting with us today. Again, the title of the book is Searching for the Castle, The Back Trail of an Adoption. Our author, Barbara Lee Orstrom. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you very much. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is The Wise Leader, 
Doing the Right Things for the Right Reasons. And our authors, our co-authors, Paul D. Houston and Stephen L. Sokolow. Welcome to the program. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Glad to talk with you. This book, apparently, and I'm not a uh, great genius, but is designed for leaders and designed for people in business. Am I understanding that correctly? That is true. It's also for aspiring leaders. Uh, and uh, in some ways, it's both for people who uh, have leadership positions, but uh, in other ways, we're talking to everyone because at different times in our lives, we all uh, have leadership roles, and uh, whether that's a, as a parent um, or just as a uh, colleague, and uh, this work is really not only for people in their professional lives, but it's for the leadership in their own personal lives. I'm seeing some chapter headings that underscore that. Chapter 15, The Wisdom of Operating from a Base of Compassion. The Wisdom of Hope Over Fear. Those are some strong chapter headings. The Wisdom of Love. You also quite frequently refer to love or compassion in this book. What is your motivation for underscoring that particular trait? Well, I think there's probably two motivations. One is it's a topic that's not talked about enough. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Steve and I were both in leadership positions for many years. And when you started talking to people about love, they started going, where's the door? What, what? They got very nervous because it's not a topic that people are used to using, particularly in the area of organizations or what have you. So it, it's a needed topic. The other reason I think we included it is I think both of us agree that it's the base for everything else. If you don't have this sense of openness of the heart, allows you to, uh, first of all, love yourself, uh, and then through that, start loving other people. It's very hard to empower them. It's very hard to act with compassion, act with a sense of forgiveness, or the other things that we uh, we try to promote the book. So it's almost like the, the operating, the starting point for operating for, for everything. But it's also a topic that really needs more discussion, I think, than, than it tends to get, particularly in the business world or in uh, formal organizations. In one of the other publications that you've co-authored, you mentioned the necessity or the importance of the spiritual dimension in leadership. Why do you feel that is important in your in your concept of leadership? Well, I think we believe spirituality permeates everything. It's and it's we try to draw the distinction between religion and, and spirituality because uh, religion often leads you down paths of uh, that end up in uh, places of disagreement and, uh, and ruling people out of things. Uh, when you look at all sorts of, of formal religions, they all have this underlying base of, of compassion, of forgiveness, of sense of other, and these sorts of things. We we see those as more of the spiritual principles. It's it's sort of if you would look at it like a computer is sort of the operating system for everything else. Um, and so we just we just try to recognize that it is a you know we did a book together called the Spiritual Dimension of Leadership, which really got into that. But it's uh, it's really uh, a sense of, of what operates underneath. And I, I ran a formal organization for a number of years, a national organization for uh, school leaders. And I would speak two or three times a, a week to these different groups, and I would bring in the, the topic of spirituality. When I first started doing it, I was a little hesitant because uh, I thought it might be very awkward. What I found was that was the thing people wanted to talk about after the speech was over because they felt that there was something missing in their leadership. There was a missing ingredient that, that they had not been taught in school, that they didn't talk about with their colleagues, but they recognized that there needed to be more to leadership than just what they read in books or what they studied in a course. I'd just like to add that you know, so many people use the word spirituality in different ways that Paul and I try in our work to be very clear that what we mean when we use that word is that there are several elements. Spiritual uh, core values are values that enhance life. They are uh, related to things that help us connect to other people. They help us connect to the natural world. And they're related to some sense that there is a force or a power, and we don't really care how you refer to it, that is higher than us. And that the so that when we use that term, 
we're referring to our connection to that force, our connection to other people, our connection to uh, the natural world, and again, those things that enhance our lives. How does an attitude of gratitude play into good leadership? Well, we have found that uh, as leaders, and I don't think we're alone in this, uh, as a matter of fact, I think there's some recent research uh, being conducted at the Wharton School by Adam Grant on the power of gratitude in the workplace. Uh, we have found that when gratitude is expressed uh, from a genuine place, which brings us back to the heart, when gratitude comes from the heart, uh, it is quite empowering. Uh, every one of us wants to be appreciated for what we do. And when the leader, another person, expresses gratitude for the contributions that people make or the way they do what they do, uh, our experience is that uh, we, we use a phrase in, our, in the book, it's kind of like the miracle grow of life. Uh, it tends to um, foster the desire in people to want to do more rather than less. I'm just to say it's a multiplier, as a multiplier effect. And when it's genuine, it has to be genuine, obviously. Uh, but when it's genuinely expressed, it, it, as Stephen said, it, it empowers and grows people to the next level and makes them want to try harder. And when you express how much you appreciate what they've done or what they're capable of doing or what have you, it, it really tends to drive them towards being more, more engaged than they already were. The other thing that Another aspect that we talk about in the book on gratitude, which may be a, seem a little unusual, is we talk about being grateful for the bad things as well as the good things. Because we think that sometimes the bad lessons that you get, the bad things that happen in an organization or to you personally, are often the most powerful lessons in terms of enhancing your own growth and the, and the uh, sort of the transformation uh, into a better place. And so when you, we talk about attitude of gratitude, we're talking about being grateful for everything, good and bad. Yeah, chapter one, you have a, a segment, the weaknesses within our strengths help us to understand life lessons. And that underscores that observation, doesn't it? Absolutely. It, uh, it, you know, we all have both strengths and weaknesses, and we can learn from both of them. And the weaknesses are potential areas where, through reflection, we can, we can grow and become more effective, which ties into another one of the core principles, which it has to do with our life lessons, because invariably our weaknesses show up in a way that are there to reveal to us opportunities for growth. And so, you know, we say, you know, when you're having difficulties in life, uh, when your weaknesses show up, it's an opportunity to reframe what's happening to you as an opportunity to grow and become better at what you do. You've managed to pen 288 pages. In addition to being instructional, would you also call this a motivational book? We hope so. <laughs> we, we certainly we were motivated writing it and uh, and living it. And you know, I think the genesis behind the whole thing is to try to help people. And as Steve said, leaders are coming all sizes and shapes. Um, and if you're a parent, you're a leader. Uh, it's so. The role is so pervasive in our society, and so how do you help people do a better job at leading? Because leading is about creating action from others, and so how do you motivate people then to do the right things um, for the right reasons, as we say in the book? Because it's not enough, in our view, just to simply do the right things, but if you're doing some of the right things for the wrong reasons, the outcome will not be as good or as powerful as it could be as if you have a better motivation behind it. So it really is about motivation at all levels, being motivated for the right things and then helping motivate others to do their best and be more empowered in doing that. I would add to that, yes. Jay, that um, I, the organization that we run is called the Center for Empowered Leadership, and the, the element of motivation for us is tied into bringing out the best in people and to bring out the things that are already in them and so what the motivation does is to remind people of things that they already know at some level and help bring those elements into their present consciousness in a way 
that they can then um, bring them into the way they are actually functioning and practicing. And from that point of view, it becomes motivating because you become sort of the better version of who you are. How would you introduce this book to someone and get them interested in reading it? Well, I would say that, uh, you know, and Paul and I believe this, that these universal core values are in all of us. And that the, uh, one of the things that we try to do in the book is to say, if people will pay attention to the values that we write about that are very familiar to everyone and every group that we get to address, that what happens, it's almost like a seed that um, gets the proper water and nutrition, and that seed begins to grow uh, into a plant or into a tree and gain in stature and power. And therefore, uh, we all have kind of good things within us that we would like to see uh, mature and grow. And our book plays that role for people um, if they're open to it. I was just going to add that there's a thin line between a wise leader and a wise guy. And I think that, that what we're trying to say in the book is that wise leaders are other-directed. It's not about them, it's about everyone else. And if they can effectively focus on that outer world while working on their own issues. I mean, we all have our own issues to, to improve and work on, but to always do things for others or do things with others in mind, that makes you more of a wise leader and moves you out of being a selfish, wise guy. Good advice, absolutely, and I've seen that in other strong leadership. Was there anything complicated or difficult about putting this book together, about assembling the, the thoughts and values that you have espoused here? Well, one of the things that was complicated was how do two people write a book rather than just one of us or you know, someone taking turns, and how can we express the ideas that Paul and I believe in deeply with a common voice? And so we, we think we figured out how to do it, but it was a challenge. I, I would just add that I think that to a large extent the, the, the challenge of writing the book was was to live what we were writing about, right? being other-directed. And so the book grew out of um, hundreds of hours of dialogue that Steve and I had, and the complicating factor for that was most of the time I was in some other place in some other part of the country in a different time zone, and so we had these uh, ongoing... Uh, efforts to talk to each other and to discuss these topics in depth with each other, um, even though uh, sometimes time and geography was a real challenge, but we also did it by listening to each other and, and really, I think, valuing what the other person had to bring to the table. And to me, that's sort of the essence of the core behind what the book's about. And so we had to model that in our own work to make it happen. Tell me the turnaround time. How long did it take to put The Wise Leader into print? It's well, it's been, two, quite, it's been two answers, right, Steve? Uh, one was like five, eight or nine years from when we started these, these discussions, so maybe a little longer, to what, a couple of years of actually doing the work and, yes. and polishing. The dialogue started probably uh, a decade ago. Um, and, and sort of pre-dialogue started a decade before that, where Steve and I discovered that we had a lot of shared values. And then we also discovered that we tried to use a lot of those shared values in the day-to-day -day work we were doing, and that led us to, to meet for dialogues about that, those topics, which then led us to actually writing about it. The key to the dialogues is that we took the basic uh, values that we had agreed upon, and we recast them as questions. And we re recast subtopics throughout the book as questions. And then with each other, just as you're doing with us, Jay, we wrestled with those questions and used a collaborative process where we listened to each other, added, clarified as we really thought through these ideas and allowed for uh, not only our conscious knowing but our unconscious knowing to emerge in the process. And we actually teach this dialogue process to others because we believe in the collective wisdom uh, of humanity and that we all have 
a lot to say, and, and we know a lot about these core values. And if you can just create the uh, right conditions, people will bring a lot to the table. In addition, you know, we're hoping that our work serves as sort of a, an impetus for people to go even deeper to the, into these ideas, because we all have something to say very worthwhile about them. Gentlemen, this is an ambitious work. Why do we need another book on leadership? Paul, you want to say something first? Well, turn on the television or pick up the paper. Uh, it's pretty clear that we have a lot of uh, leadership in the world, uh, the local, state, national, international level, that uh, doesn't always demonstrate the kind of wisdom you'd like to have from your leaders, the kind of other-directed, the sense of compassion, the sense of of uh, empowering others, all these things that we try to cover in the book um, seem to be sorely missing uh, from a lot of the leadership in today's world, which tends to be much more self-centered and, and self-promoting. And so uh, we think that there's really a, a, a crying need for uh, people to consider an alternative way of leading from what we're, uh, what we're being modeled uh, so much of the time. Yeah, I would add to that that there are many books out there on managerial skills, technical skills of leadership, and I'm sure those books are needed. But we have found that the missing piece is wisdom, which we define as people who can do the right things at the right time in the right way for the right reasons. The question is, how can we cultivate leaders who can do that, leaders who are wise? And we believe that the core values that we write about, when practiced, will in fact lead to wiser leadership in any field. Well put and beautifully said. Thank you for sharing that information. The book title again, and one I would recommend to anyone that feels they are destined for leadership, the title, The Wise Leader, Doing the Right Things for the Right Reasons. And our co-authors, Paul D. Houston and Stephen L. Sokolow. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. Where do we get copies of your book? Uh, you can get it at a number of sources, uh, Amazon.com, uh, the Barnes & Noble web website, the iUniverse.com website, and the Barrett Kohler website. So uh, it's available. It's also, uh, you can tap into it from our website, the Center for Empowered Leadership.org. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. We appreciate the opportunity. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.